Hello. How is everyone? Wonderful. I almost believed you. How is everyone? All right. Decent and you're here. And that's really what's important, right? We made it out of bed. We got dressed and we made it this morning and that matters. All right. Tomorrow's the day off and we will figure out tomorrow when tomorrow comes. Amen. Well, for those who don't know me, my name is Eric Upton. I'm the middle school pastor here at Bridgeway. I'm blessed to be the middle school pastor. I love what I do. Love being here with you. Love that uh, for whatever reason, they trust me or at least they ran out of other options and allow me to be here on this stage and uh, just sharing in the word with you. And uh, I just wanted to kind of start out and, and reveal something to you all. And it may come as a shock to some of you um, based on my rugged exterior and stylings. Um, but I'm not exactly what you would call a handy guy, at least naturally speaking. You know, like some people, you just look at them and you can tell like that right there, that is a handy guy. That That is someone who can look at stuff and figure it out and tinker with it and build it or fix it or whatever it is. I'm not that person. I, I'm the guy, a friend once described me to another friend who was inviting me over to fix their um, their patio or lay cement, or I don't even remember, I wasn't paying attention when it happened, but um, <laughs> he was inviting me over to help do manly work, you know, and, and my other friend kind of chimed in, and he said, whoa, 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 <laughs> you should know something about Eric before you invite him over to do projects like this. See, he's really good at making you laugh while you're the one doing the work, but he doesn't actually do any of the work. And I just kind of nodded and smiled because at that point in time, it was uh, pretty darn true. And I mean, the good news is that recently I've I've learned to become more handy. You know, this is more of a learn trade at this point. Um, my wife and I, we've begun the incredibly wonderful and amazing journey of enriching our marriage through the process of home renovation. I see. So you have taken that enrichment class as well for your marriages. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, if you've ever done that with your spouse, you know just how enriching that can be. Hey, I mean, the good news is we're we're doing most, if not all, the work ourselves. And uh, to be honest with you, it's actually been pretty smooth sailing, all things considered. You know, as smooth as that kind of a thing can be. But when I think about my wife, I mean, she grew up in this family where they were doing all kinds of projects around the house. Her dad was fixing stuff. And her being the oldest and ambitious child, she would insert herself into whatever was going on. She would ask her dad, hey, what are you doing and can you teach me this? And she was always getting her hands dirty and messy with all of these projects and helping out. And, and that's not to say that my family didn't do these things as well. In fact, they did. My dad is a very handy guy. He owned his own cabinet business for many years. He's still involved in the carpentry trade. He can look at automobiles and things around the house and fix them and repair what's wrong. But um, anytime he would do those sorts of things, I made myself pretty scarce around the house because I just didn't want to be a part of it. I mean, if push came to shove, I would have much rather been out with my friends or watching TV or anything like that than helping him fix the things that needed to be fixed. And so I kind of missed out by my own design on the opportunity to learn some of these really important things that my dad honestly tried to pass along to me. Well, here's the thing though. I remember a couple of times I remember a couple of times when my dad would be fixing things and because I didn't have any other option or any good excuse to get out of it, I was suckered into standing there and watching him work and he was trying to teach me things while this stuff was going on. And I remember this one time or, or a few occasions when I was standing next to him and, and the strange thing would happen is my dad was working on something, whether it was a car or um, under the sink or, or fixing something around the house. I remember anytime he encountered this problem where um, maybe something was screwed on too tight or, or it needed to be forced to do what it, he wanted it to do. He, this weird thing would kind of come over him. And I would watch my dad as his body would kind of contort itself to get and manipulate this thing to do what it was supposed to do. And he would kind of curl his tongue just under itself a little bit. And then he would bite down on his tongue and breathe inward through his mouth. And then this strange phrase would come out of his mouth. And it would kind of sound a lot like this. Come on, you dog. And it would come out in this southern accent, revealing his Texan heritage. And I remember as a kid watching this happen almost religiously whenever he encountered something difficult and thinking to myself, man, why does my dad think that by insulting this thing that he is working on, somehow it will be convinced to do the thing that he wants it to do? 
as if that bolt or that nut or that screw that is on too tight or needs to be tightened more will all of a sudden do what he wants it to do because he has insulted it. As if it will look back at him and say, whoa, man, I didn't know we were serious. Hold on, I'll do what you want me to do. But that's what he did. It's almost like he couldn't help himself. I always thought that was funny until, well, a couple weeks ago. And I was under my sink, and I had a crescent wrench in one hand and a pair of channel lock pliers in the other hand, and the crescent wrench was attached to one fixture underneath my bathroom sink, and the channel lock pliers was attached to the other fixture, and these two things were, were way too tight on one another, and I had convinced myself that the prior owner of my house was the Incredible Hulk who installed everything himself, and I was trying to manipulate these things to do what I wanted them to do, and, and some people call what I was doing plumbing, but I like to call it the seventh circle of hell, and um, which, by the way, there's no biblical evidence for what I'm about to tell you, but I'm pretty certain that it does exist. I do believe that there are such things called pipe demons. And um, if you yourself have encountered a pipe demon, um, we're gathering the prayer team over on the side to pray exorcism over those pipe demons. So um, they will remove themselves shortly. All right. Just so you know, but I'm underneath the sink and I'm, I'm working on this stuff and I'm trying with all my might to get these things to do what I need them to do without busting my knuckles on virtually everything that is under there. And I'm going like this and all of a sudden it comes over my body and my tongue curls under it. I bite down on it. I breathe in through my mouth and I say, come on, you dog. I'm from California. I don't have a Texas accent. And yet that's how it came out of my mouth. Now, this would have been bad enough if it weren't for what happened next, because I didn't realize that my middle daughter had been standing there watching me work the whole time. And from under the sink, I hear, come on, dog. See, I mean, I think as much as we like to think that many of our habits or quirks or, as I call them, traditions are unique to us as individuals, the reality is we're all products and maybe not entirely, but in large part of our families. Whether it was through what they did do or what they did not do, we all have these tendencies within us as a direct result of who our families were. And if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or have even spent time around your friend's small children, you've learned that they watch you. They listen to what it is that you're saying and how you say it and what it is that you're doing and how you do it and why you do it. I've already had a number of experiences in the short time that I've been a parent and in the longer time, especially as I've been a middle school pastor, where I've realized that kids, that children, that students pick up are unintentional habits. And they quickly become like little mirrors that end up reflecting me. And it's one thing to see how kids pick up our unintentional traits, but I wonder what about the things that we intentionally pass on? Have you ever thought about it like that? Have you ever asked yourself what character traits or attitudes or perspectives or values or morals will we pass on to the next generation for the sake of God's kingdom? Now, I have to kind of go off on a tangent here, but this is kind of important. See, what I'm talking about here, this this is not just a parenting question. Don't misunderstand me and think that I'm only talking to or speaking to people with their own children. This is a question for the entire house of the Lord. I mean, if you're a parent, this isn't just about the kids that came from you. This is about all the children that are in your sphere of influence. And if you don't yet have kids of your own, or if you have not had kids of your own, this is about how you will influence the next generation that is under you. How will you pass along the things that God has instilled in you to the people that are just under you that are coming behind you? If you're a young adult, how will you pass on what God is teaching you and what God has instilled you to the generation below you? If you're a high school student, How will you influence the generation younger than you? A middle school student, how will you influence the small children that are around you? See, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, 7, that you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And a lot of us read this as you who have your own children will teach them. But see, that's the problem. We keep reading scripture through the lens of our own self-centric and self-focused, entitled and individualistic North American culture. We can't do that. I can't stress this enough as we continue in the message today that we must step outside of our natural tendency to see things through the lens of an individualistic culture. 
and begin to see them through a lens of a culture that understood life and purpose and meaning through the lens of family and community and one another. See, what the Hebrew understood about Deuteronomy 6-7 was that this was a command to the whole community. It might as well say, you, the entire community, are in charge of diligently teaching all children, the next generation, about my commands, about my character, about my nature, about who I am. And when you sit with them in your house, that's right, your house should be a place that children naturally end up and want to come to and feel welcomed in and comfortable at. And when you are going along your way, that's right, your way should include children. Your path should be inclusive of these kids, not circumventing them. And when you lie down and when you wake up and everything that you do should not be focused on what it is that I have to get done today, all the errands that I have to run today, all the things that I have to accomplish at work today, all the projects that I have to get done today, all the places that I have to take my kids today. The focus should be on God, how can I pass along who you are to this next generation in everything that I do today? See, I believe that God has charged us to pass along who he is and what he's done for us to the next generation. And he's given us this incredible narrative of communion and of Passover to share in. But the problem is we miss in its richness and its depth so much. And there's a number of reasons as to why I think we miss the rich depths of communion and Passover. And yes, I, I do think that part of our North American culture to be self-focused and self-interested and self-centered plays a huge role in that. But honestly, I think there's two bigger reasons that play a larger role into why us as the church, why us as a community miss out on the opportunity to share the depth and richness of what communion and Passover actually are. I, I think it comes down to these two things, really. First, I think that we focus way too narrowly on the story of what occurred at the Last Supper, that we miss everything that led up to that, that basically led up to and set the very table for Jesus to sit at along with his disciples. And because of our narrowed focus, we miss out on God's grand narrative and everything that had been happening before that. And the second reason is that in light of that narrowed focus, we leave the teaching of God's story to primarily programmatic features and paid ministry staff to be the primary vessels of teaching the next generation what it's about. Let me try and break that down and, and say it a little bit more simply for you. I think the first reason we miss out on the rich depth of what communion and Passover are about is because we're too focused on what occurred at the table on the night that Jesus was betrayed and we miss the larger story. And the second thing is I think we're way too dependent on the people that are paid or have positional ministry duties to be the primary vessels that teach the following generation who God is. What I want to press into you is this. I don't want to challenge you with anything today, but instead I want to implore you, I want to beg you, and even push you into understanding two things. Number one, the rich depth and connection between Passover and communion and how it proclaims Jesus and God and his grand narrative throughout time. And the second thing, I want you to become so deeply moved by the grand story that you see and feel and are driven by it to proclaim it in the lives of the next generation. That is my honest hope. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we lay everything that we are and everything that we have before you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and that you would cut through our very lives and spirits. God, that after today there wouldn't be a hard heart in this room. God, that you would remove any barriers or stones. God, that you would speak clarity into the lives of our hearts. God, that we would know you better. And from knowing you better, we would go out and proclaim you more to those around us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So let's begin in the very beginning. Because that's where it all started. And we have to go back to the beginning before we can even approach the table of which it seems our purpose lies today. 
And for some of you, you're hearing me talk about the beginning and you're thinking, surely he can't mean the beginning. And yes, I do mean the beginning. Turn into your Bibles into Genesis chapter 3, where it all really begins, where God's grand story and his grand narrative actually begins to unfold before our very eyes, but in a way that many of us wouldn't expect it to. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 8. We'll work through verse 13 and then jump ahead to verse 21. But for now, let's start in Genesis chapter 3, or yeah, chapter 3, verse 8. This is what it says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was I was naked and I, I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, the woman who you gave to be with me, she, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I, I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the, the serpent deceived me and I, I ate. Now skip down to verse 21 in chapter 3 because this is the part that so many people miss or skip over or read and don't see the significance in. Verse 21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And boom, here it is. This is where God begins his grand narrative. This is where God does something so remarkable and yet so subtle that for so many of us it goes unnoticed. Let me read it again and see if you catch it. Genesis chapter 3 verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Did you catch it? See, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they knew immediately that there was something in them, something on them, something about them, something infecting them. That now their very identity had caused a rift between them and their creator and their maker, God. And this new thing, this feeling, this sense, this sin that was in their lives began eating away at their very souls. And instantly they knew that God would not see them in the same way ever again. And so they went out and they covered it up on their own. They sewed fig leaves together and they did what they could to cover up the sin and the shame that they felt so that God would not have to look directly upon them. And isn't it funny how remarkably similar that is to how we still operate so often today? That we sin and we mess up and in our shame and our guilt we try and cover it up ourselves. And in their shame, they did out of their own power whatever they could do to fix the problem. And when God sees them and after handing out the consequences of their sin, God sees that there still exists a need to cover up properly over the sin that is within them. So God takes an animal and its life is sacrificed and a garment is made to cover them and their shame. Did you see it? From the very beginning, sin could not be covered by man's efforts alone. But God stepped in and through sacrifice, man's sins were covered. And there's no biblical evidence for this, but I began to wonder as I read through this and, and kind of made this discovery on my own. I, is it too far out? Is it too crazy to think? And to ask the question, I, I wonder what animal God chose to sacrifice so that he could cover Adam and Eve. Is it too crazy to think that perhaps that was the first lamb to be sacrificed for the sake of sin? But wait, it gets better. Fast forward now to Genesis chapter 15. And it's here that we find another passage that if you don't know any better, you miss the significance of. And in fact, I had missed the significance of this for many, many years until recently. Check this out. Genesis chapter 15 is the story of the Abrahamic covenant. And in it, we see incredible interaction between God and Abraham. And in verse one, God says this, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. To which Abram, soon to be Abraham, replies with, but God, how, how can I be great? I, I have no children of my own. How can I be great when the one who's going to inherit everything that I have is actually a slave of mine? How will my name be great when all my land, my possessions, hopes, dreams, knowledge, wisdom, and being will only be passed along to someone who doesn't share my name? 
And see, this is already significant because Abram knows that without the ability to pass along who he is to his own kids, he really has no lasting value. And God takes Abram outside and says to him, look up at the stars. And if you can count the number of stars, then you will be able to count the number of descendants that are going to come from you. And Abram's reply in verse 8 of Genesis 15, but he said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And Abram says, Okay, but how can I know for sure? What proof do I have? What can I place my hope into that you will do as you say what you will do? And here's the thing that we have to understand. We have to stop reading scripture through our own North American culture-centered eyes. Where we look at scripture as if Abram is actually turning to God and saying, but God, how do I know I'm going to personally receive what I want to receive? That's not what he's asking. See, when Abram uses the word I, when he says, how do I know I will possess the land? He's not asking for himself, but on behalf of his lineage, he's come to the point where he says, God, I trust that you're going to bring descendants, but how do I know that they're going to be the ones who will actually inherit the land that you're now promising to me? How can I trust that? How can I place my hope in that? See, Abram understood that everything mattered through the eyes of community and the lens of family. And he wanted everything that he had to belong to his kids and to his lineage. And this was the question that he was asking to God. And God turns to Abram and he says, here, this is a shopping list. Take this list, find everything on it and come back to me. And if you want to see the list, it's right there in Genesis 15. And Abram looks at it and he sees what's on it and he knows exactly what's for dinner that night. You see, Abram finds a list of animals on that list and he goes out and he cuts the animals in half and he lays them stacked upon one another and just slightly with a gap in the middle between the pieces of the animals and he leaves the birds untouched and then he waits. And this seems odd to us, but back then this was not an abnormal thing. God was setting up a blood oath to be taken between the two of them. And it was a customary at that time for two people who were making a significant covenant with one another to go out and find five animals, to cut them in half, to lay the pieces with a gap between the middle to allow the blood to spill out from the animals. And then the two parties would walk in between the pieces, reciting each person's responsibilities found within the covenant. And so they'd walk back and forth between these pieces, reciting each party's commitment that is found inside the covenant. And as they were walking back and forth, they were symbolizing or signifying that if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may what's happened to these animals be the same thing that happens to me. And this was customary back in that time, especially when two parties were making an arrangement over land. And so if you were to walk around and see two people walking between bloody animal pieces, you knew exactly what was going on. This wasn't odd by any means. It was a formal and serious way of saying, I will keep my end of the bargain so far as it depends on me. And if I don't keep my end, may what happened to these animals also happen to me. And then this happens. Near the end of the chapter, God does something that seems so small to us because we're so far removed from this type of a covenantal agreement. But it's absolutely remarkable when you see it. Verses 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Did you catch it? See, God walked through the pieces alone. God recited the covenant agreements alone. God was saying to Abram, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, I will place my very deity, my very Godhead on the line, and I will be sacrificed as these animals were if I don't do what I say I'm going to do. I'm committing to you that if I don't follow through on my word, may what happened to these animals happen to me. But, and this is so significant, since Abram did not walk through the pieces God was also saying, and if you do not hold up your end of the bargain in your faithfulness, and if your people fail to hold up to my statutes and my laws and my commands, I'm not holding you accountable to it. I'm holding me accountable to it. God, by walking through the pieces of alone, and, and reciting these commitments by himself was saying to Abram that if you fail or your descendants fail, it's not them that will be held accountable and be on the hook for it. It will be me. I will take the punishment 
if your people don't follow through. And God took on this covenant with a single act committed to the blood sacrifice of the future for our failings. But wait, it gets better. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, the voice of God again comes to Abraham. And this time he tells Abraham to go and take his only son, the embodiment of all of his hopes and dreams and future, and sacrifice him to the Lord on a mountaintop. And we read through Genesis 22, and it strikes us as odd because we can't understand why God would do this. Why God would ask this of Abraham in the first place. I mean, sure, some of us like to think we understand the big picture and we see that God is foreshadowing right here with Abraham and his only son what he would later do with Jesus Christ on the cross. And yes, that's part of it, but there's so much more to this story. You see, on the head of every firstborn and every firstborn son was the price of their parents' sins. And you can look and see how this played out in Numbers chapter 3, in Numbers chapter 8, and then later in Exodus. But you will see God say in Scripture multiple times that the life of the firstborn son, the one who breaks through the womb first, their life belongs to me. And if you're hearing that for the first time or reading this for the first time, that's going to strike you as really odd. I mean, if you're anything like me, you're thinking to yourself, but God, how can you be that kind of God? I mean, I like the loving and the faithful and the righteous God. I like the God who is caring about us, the God who sees us, the God who knows us and the God who watches out for us and protects us. What is this God that I'm reading about in scripture that would say the life of the firstborn belongs to me, that the sins of the previous generation hangs upon their head? That doesn't make sense to me. And that's largely because we're used to our culture, where in our culture, if you mess up or if you mess up, that is on you. You are the one that has to pay for that, not me. If you do something wrong, that is your problem and your issue that has to be fixed, not mine. But you have to understand that's not how this culture works. You see, everything is interconnected and family is everything. So let's talk about this for a second, because what God is saying is that the sins of the previous generation belong on the head of the firstborn. And in order to really understand this, we kind of have to have a conversation, an honest conversation about sin, about right versus wrong. Because let's be real, in a room this size with this many people, there has to be a few of us that are really struggling with this concept of sin, this idea that God would hold things against us. I mean, let's talk this out for a minute, shall we? Let's talk about right and wrong. Because some of us have an honest problem that God is the one who ultimately determines what is right and what is wrong. We think, well, that's not exactly fair. I mean, he's God and he's perfect. And how is it right that a perfect God gets to set the moral standard for my life? I mean, after all, I am an independent person and I should be in charge of my own morality and determining what is right and what is wrong for myself. I should be the one that is in charge of that. And if I stick to my own moral standards and my own view of what is right versus what is wrong, then that should be credit enough. That should be good enough because after all, I'm a pretty decent person. All right, let's play that game. Let's say you're in charge. You get to determine what is right and what is wrong. Let's talk about the wrong side of things. Because if you're honest with yourself and you honestly think about it, even the people who are closest to you have wronged you at some point. Whether it was your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your best friend, your spouse, it doesn't matter. At one point or another, and more than likely, more than one point, you have felt wrong by even the people who are closest to you. Which means if we take you as the measurement of right and wrong, even the people closest to you have already failed. Now let's take it a step further and take that measuring line and let's turn it around like a mirror and point it back towards you. How have you failed your own morality, your own measuring stick of what's right versus what's wrong? And isn't it interesting how even when we're the ones in charge, we still fail. And so there we have it. We understand and maybe now we're willing to come to a point where we say, okay, there is such thing as right and wrong. There is such thing as moral failure. And okay, I'm, I'm willing to go with you and say that I don't measure up to that. But how can we look at this story and see how these things land at the head of the firstborn? How does this honestly work? And you have to understand it through the eyes of the culture. 
See, God claimed the lives of every firstborn and he said, they belong to me because the debt of sin has to be paid because every time a wrong is done, there is a debt that exists. Well, what do you mean there's a debt that exists when a wrong is done? Well, let's talk about that. Here's what happens when something is done wrong to you. You are immediately faced with a choice. Option A, you can look at the person who has wronged you and you can choose to publicly berate them or even privately berate them. You could choose to attack their personhood and their character and defame them and take every ounce and shred of humanity away from them. Whether you do it to their face, because after all, you're a man and men deal with things like men. And if I've got a problem with you, I'm going to go to you and I'm going to tell you about it. But in telling you about it, I'm taking away everything that you are and I start chipping away at you or... I'm not so manly and I don't like telling you about the problem that we have between you and me. And I'm going to go tell all of your friends and all of my friends and all of my family and all the people in our church about how terrible a person that you are. It'll eventually get back to you. I'm pretty confident of that. But at least I won't be the one who tells you those things. But every time you do it, who is paying for the wrong that was done? They are. You're charging them for it with every comment and every slight and every insult and every refusal to give relational access to them. So what's the other option? Let's say you choose forgiveness because after all, that's what Jesus commanded us to do, isn't it? Let's say that we forgive the person. Let's say that we go out of our way, that when we see them, we are loving towards them. When we want to insult them, we don't. We hold on to it and we speak kind words. When other people are talking about them poorly behind their back, we stick up for them. We say nice things about them. We don't withhold relational access, but we actually increase it with them. We choose forgiveness. But in that scenario, who pays the price of the wrong? We do. With every act and every ounce of forgiveness, we pay the cost of the wrong that was done. And so there you have it. The issue of sin and right and wrong and the issue that there is a debt every time a wrong exists. And when you look at it and you think of it, that's just at a human level. Imagine now what that is like at a cosmic level to a perfect God who sees all the wrongs that have been done and understands the exact gravity of the weight of that those debts carry with it. And now think about it within the context of a family, community, culture. And you begin to see how this debt, as families are so intertwined, belongs at the head of the firstborn son. And see, Abraham understood that attached to his firstborn son, Isaac, was not just his hopes and dreams, but also the debt of his sins. And this was not just God testing Abraham's faith, but the calling in of a debt of sin. God was saying that sins must be paid for, and the debt of your sin lies upon the head of your first and only son. So Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain along with a pile of wood and fire and a knife. And as Abraham and his son Isaac walk up the mountain, Isaac looks at his dad and he says, hey, um, hey, pop, um, hey, listen, I, I know you're you were kind of old when you had me, like older than Billy's dad and and Jacob's dad and all that. Um, and I, I know that what happens to old people when they get old, they forget stuff. Um, and and see, I was looking around and I noticed that um, you got the knife, which is great. And it's uh, pointy end down in your belt, which is always advisable. Um, and you, you were holding the fire and you strapped the wood to my back, which strikes me as odd. But, you know, I'll go with it. Um, but I feel like there's something else that we need to make the sin sacrifice. I mean, I've, I've been with you before and I've done this before. And it seems like yes, knife, wood, fire and yeah, a lamb. We've forgotten a lamb. Dad, where is the lamb? And Abraham looks over at Isaac and he says, don't worry, son, the Lord will provide. And they get to the top of the mountain and Abraham ties up his son and places him on the altar and raises the knife to pay the debt of sin, his sins that lie at the head of his son. And just as Abraham is about to take the life of his son, God's voice speaks and says, Abraham, stop. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught in the thicket and sacrifices it. But you see, the ram did not replace Isaac. The ram did not take Isaac's place as a sin offering to God. No, the ram was a thank offering on behalf of Abraham and Isaac for God pressing the pause button on making the claim over Isaac's life and the debt of sin that still existed. 
When Abraham and Isaac walked back down the mountain, the debt of sin still hung over Isaac's head. But they were grateful to God that he withheld his justice and withheld his desire to claim that debt. And they sacrificed a ram as a thank offering to him. But wait, it gets better. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. And it's here that we see the beginning of a rich tradition in verse 14. And more than that, we see God deliver his people and pave the way for the redemption and deliverance of the world. See, in Exodus 12, God tells his people through Moses that he is going to collect on the debt of sin that lies at the head of every firstborn in all of Egypt. And if you want to be spared from paying the debt, the only thing that will save you is the covering of the blood of a firstborn and perfect lamb. And anyone who is not covered by the blood of the lamb would have to pay the price of sin that was over their firstborn's head. Now, you need to understand two things. First, it was the blood of the lamb placed over the doorway of each house of Israel that covered them and caused the destroyer to pass over the home. But you had to be inside the door and inside the house. This wasn't a permanent covering of sin, but a temporary one night only thing. In verse 22, Moses tells Israel that no one is to go out of the home until morning because if they were to stand before the Lord, they would not be covered and they would not be able to stand and face judgment before him. Their sins would not be covered by the perfect lamb's blood anymore. And so Moses had to tell the people, stay in your home until morning because if you come out and face judgment, you're dead. And second and most importantly, in Exodus 12, What we see at the end of it is that in each home, in all of Egypt, there existed one of two things. It either had a dead lamb or a dead son. And you have to imagine what it was like for the families, and especially for the firstborns, on that night as they're sitting down to dinner, looking at the meal, looking at the roasted lamb. And the realization occurs that the only reason they're still there is because the lamb is not. And this, this begins the tradition of Passover. From this point on, God's people celebrated Passover every year. And it was so important to them, it actually marked for many years the very beginning of the Hebrew religious calendar. And the Hebrew people used Passover to teach every aspect of who God was and what he had done to the next generation, to the people that would follow behind them. They would use this as a chance to give tangible experience of God's presence and his character and his promises to his people. And the Passover was celebrated with an incredible meal. And this is how it kind of worked in the following years. On the 10th day of the month they called Nisan, there was uh, a lamb that was selected. And they would keep it until the 14th day. And then at twilight on the 14th day, they would sacrifice this lamb and begin roasting it. And then they'd play a little game with the kids to kind of start the meal off and start the celebration off. They would hide leavened bread or, or bread that had yeast in it and had risen. Or they'd hide little piles of yeast all around the house. And the kids, the younger people, would have to go around and find this bread or find this yeast and then throw it outside of the door to remove any trace of yeast or leaven from the house. And you have to remember that yeast was a sign for sin. And it was a cleansing of the house symbolically. And after that, they would begin the Seder meal. And Seder is a Hebrew word. It means order. And it speaks of the order in which this meal went in. And I'm just going to read a bulleted list of some of the things that would occur in this meal to give you a general idea of how rich this celebration actually is. But these are the things that would occur. You'd have the search for leaven that I just mentioned. And then a lighting of the Passover candles where the head female in the household would light the Passover candles. And then there would be a sanctifying blessing in the first cup of wine led by the male head of the household. Everyone would wash their hands together. Then there would be the green vegetables dipped in salt water. The salt water stood for the tears of the Israelites as they were in slavery and the saltiness of the sea with which they crossed over upon. And then there would be a blessing. There'd be a breaking of the middle matzah, which is bread, and the hiding of one half of it. They would take half of that first piece of bread that they broke, and they would hide it. Some people would celebrate and have the kids go and find it later on in the meal. They would eat the the first half that they didn't hide, and then there would be the telling of the story of Passover. They would speak and tell orally the entire story of what God did in Exodus, 
all ten plagues and everything that Pharaoh said. And it was this magical exchange between the male head of the household and all the people that were a part of this celebration. And they would speak recited lines back and forth to one another. The second washing of hands and blessing would occur. The blessing of the bread and the eating of the matzah and then eating of bitter herbs and eating of sandwich of uh, maror and matzah. Then there would be the festival meal, the eating of the lamb and hard-boiled eggs and many other things. And then they would retrieve that hidden loaf of bread from the beginning, that hidden half, and they would bring that out. And the male head of household would break off pieces and individually hand it out to everyone there, and they would eat that together. And after the meal blessing, the third cup of wine would be enjoyed. And the welcoming of Elijah, the male head of the household, and everyone in it would walk to the front door and open the front door and invite Elijah in because the thought was that as they symbolically invite Elijah into this Passover meal, that they would also allow for him to bring along the Messiah with him. And then they would sing the Hallel, the songs of praise from Psalms, and then the fourth cup and the completion of the Seder, and then they would all look at one another and say, next year in Jerusalem. And think about that. This is how Passover and communion was celebrated in the homes of Hebrew families. And all I did was run through a bulleted list. But understand that throughout this entire thing, there is scripture being quoted and kids are asking prescribed questions that get answered by the entire community and their songs that are sung and people at the table have lines that they recite. And all of this comes together in this marvelous celebration that teaches kids about the depth of love and provision and protection and deliverance of their God. When you think about it like that, it kind of makes the grape juice shot and cracker thing look a little bit silly if we never explain it or allow our kids to experience the history and context, doesn't it? And see, that's the thing. We keep thinking that our kids have to find it on their own and discover for themselves. And if we just keep bringing them once or twice a week to the paid professionals, then surely they will catch on and have a faith that's even better than my own. But how can they discover a faith that isn't modeled to them? And how can they know a God that their community only speaks of on a weekly basis? And how can they find the deep truths and richness of worship in our God unless we make many the moments in which we show them all that he is and all that he does and all that he has done from the beginning up through now? But wait, it gets even better. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples working through the very traditions that we just described and in front of him are the four cups of wine and the three loaves of unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and everything that is needed for a passover seder and jesus has worked through the majority of the passover seder meal and is nearing the end and they've gotten to the part where normally the meal is had and yet there's something remarkably different in this meal something that seems a little off as if an important portion of this meal is missing at first. Take a look at the scripture on the screens behind me. It's a combined account of the Last Supper from Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, Mark 14, 22 through 25, Luke 22, 15 through 20. And then we added in Paul's account from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. You'll see that in the purple. This is what it says. And as they were eating supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, gave it to them, saying, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And after blessing it and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after they had eaten the bread saying, drink of it, all of you. For this cup that is poured out for you is my blood of the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, truly, I I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom, the kingdom of God. 
And so here's what you're seeing. In the middle of the meal portion of Passover, where the head of the house, in this case Jesus, would normally grab the third cup of wine and bless it and then bring everyone to the door to invite Elijah's presence into the Passover meal, Jesus instead grabs the cup and he fills it with wine and instructs the disciples to do the same in their cups and he tells them that he has longed to celebrate this Passover meal with them before his death. And after they fill their cups, Jesus then takes out the bread. And this isn't just a random piece of unleavened bread. There were three loaves used at specific times, and this was the hidden piece from earlier in the meal. Jesus removes it from its covering, and he brings it back out. And traditionally speaking, when this was brought back out, everyone at the table understood what this bread symbolized. It symbolized hope for the future. It it was a symbol of redemption. A symbol that God again acts in history to proclaim good news to the poor and release captives and recover sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what this piece of bread symbolized and everyone knew that. And then here's Jesus and he takes that bread and he begins to break it off and hand a piece to everyone at the table. And as he's doing so, this bread that symbolized all those things, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take, eat, and do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus takes the third cup and he says this, drink it all of you, for this is the cup that is poured out for you is my blood of the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And the disciples drank and as they looked around, something became unmistakably clear to them. They looked And before them was Jesus, the hidden bread of life, no longer hidden, but there for the taking. And there in front of them was Jesus offering the symbolic cup of his blood, bringing hope and redemption and forgiveness and deliverance. But most striking was the reality that on the night where every Hebrew son learned or remembered that it was on the first Passover night that in every home in Egypt was was either a dead lamb or a dead son, there was Jesus. God's firstborn and only son and the one true lamb of God. And the disciples realized that maybe for the first time as you realize that in Jesus, God provided both the lamb and the firstborn son as final payment for the sins of the whole world. Did you catch it? And now here we are seeing the entire picture from the beginning all the way up to now, and God established in his justice and grace that sin would have to be covered. Sin requires a payment, and God met the requirement of sin's payment through the death of the perfect lamb, God's firstborn and only son, Jesus Christ. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and we're going to play through a couple of songs. And while the band gets ready and while they're playing through these songs, see, I refuse to ask you to think about what this means for you. I mean, naturally, that thought is going to occur. But more importantly, I want to ask us, what does this mean for us? How will we as a community of believers take this information and this history and this truth and pass it along to the next generation? in our coming and our going and our lying down and our waking up and all along the way, how will we pass along with our neighbors and our friends and our family and our community and most importantly, our children? And while the band plays, the ushers are going to come and they're going to pass out small elements designed to turn our hearts and our minds together as a community to who God is for us and what he has done for us. And as you wait for the juice and cracker to arrive, I want to invite you to pray, but I don't want you to pray alone. I don't want you to spend this time in silent reflection by yourself. See, the band is going to sing songs that I want us to sing as a community. I want us to lift our voices as a community to the Lord. But before we do it, I want us to pray as a community. I want us to come together with the people around us. And I know that's weird and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable because let's all face it. We had an unspoken agreement when we came here that we would sit together. Sure, that we would engage in the program. Sure, but let's just not make eye contact, shall we? Well, not this morning. 
This morning, we're going to break the norm. We're going to break the North American cultural tradition of coming and sitting and leaving and letting that be that. This morning, we're going to pray together. I want you to turn to the people and I want you to pray prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of blessing and prayers of praise to our heavenly father who from the very foundations of the earth in the beginning of time set forth and saw fit that we could not take care of our own sin and began the works throughout history to take care of the sins that we couldn't, to pay the price that we could never pay and to redeem us from the things that we couldn't redeem ourselves from. So as the elements are being passed out, turn with one another and pray prayers of thanksgiving and then join together as one family as we sing praises to our Father. As they were eating supper, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and after blessing it and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. And after it, they had eaten the bread, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this cup that is poured out for you is my blood of the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God's redemptive narrative can be seen and understood from the very beginning up through now. And the question is, how will we as a community, as a family, respond to this? How will we respond to what God has done from Genesis chapter 3 all the way up to the table at which our Lord sat on the night that he was betrayed and even continues to do now? So I encourage you that whenever it is that you leave this particular place, that you would go and make a meal together, that you would invite your family and your friends and your neighbors and commune together and share with one another in celebration and in joy in light of all of the magnificent works of our Lord. That we would join together once more as family in worship. That we would sing together the praises of our God. That we would leave this place in light of what God has done, proclaiming who he is to all we know and all we meet and especially to all generations who would come behind us. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together as a family one last time.